This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. High and late summer are when many of our native or drought-tolerant and heat-loving plants can and should shine, especially those plants adapted to the arid North American West. In the past few weeks, I've enjoyed wildland hikes and cultivated gardens, and in each case, I have been drawn to the buckwheats, those eye-catching puffs and often blankets of color ranging from white to cream to acid yellow to pink to red. They bloom, sometimes it seems without stop, in our native or drought-tolerant gardens here in California. California from early June to October. On a recent hike up Mount Eddy, across the way from Mount Shasta, lying between California's northern Siskiyou and Trinity counties, I was amazed at not only the abundance of buckwheats in flower, but also by their diversity. When I returned home, at the suggestion of botanist friend Julie Nelson, I searched CalFlora's What Grows Here online tool, and in the course of the hike, there were at least 17 different species of buckwheats. Forming the genus Areogonum, buckwheats are miracles of beauty and resilience this time of year. Observing them in the wild provides wonderful inspiration for good garden composition, including companion plants and positioning in terms of drainage and exposure. The tenacious buckwheats grow on the slimmest of soils, on the sunniest and windiest of peaks and slopes, and still they look fresh, whether in foliage, flower, or seed. Buckwheats also attract a wide variety of native bees and small butterflies. Almost all species of Areogonum are considered important sources of food, both food for larval development and sustaining nectar and pollen for our native and non-native pollinators, especially in the late summer months when other food sources have passed. Without question, I have a long-term horticultural crush on our native buckwheats. Therefore, I was delighted to hear that the International Areogonum Society was to host their annual meeting this year in Weed, California. No jokes. From July 21st to the 23rd. Dr. Ben Grady, an instructor of biology and botany at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville, is on the board of the Areogonum Society, and he joins us today via Skype to share more about this genus, this society, and the upcoming conference. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, Jennifer. So you're a relatively young lecturer and botanist at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville, and you're a board member on the Areogonum Society, a society dedicated to the study of the genus Areogonum. These are also known as the ornamental or wild buckwheats. Tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a plant person. Well, I've always been an outdoor person. Uh, Growing up, we would forage and I always had a keen interest in knowing what plants were and how we could use those plants Mm -hmm. and gardening as well even though I'm not a great gardener I will admit (laughs) but growing up I was always always exposed to that and then I just sort of found my found my path to biology in college it wasn't a direct path by any means but I would say I became a plant person when I took a, a plant systematics course as an undergraduate with uh, with Steve O'Kane, and he ignited my passion 
for plants and especially Western plants. Mm. And it was all over from there. So where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the in the east or in the west? I grew up in the middle, in Iowa, actually, of all ah. places. And um, where were you at undergraduate school, Ben? I was at the University of Northern Iowa. Okay. I- I'm just curious about this, but the what was it about that undergraduate professor that lit up your enthusiasm for Western plants specifically? That's a great question. Um, he is a botanist. He is a great field botanist. Mm-hmm. And he is, I would say, one of the better field botanists and one of the better Western field botanists. And he took me out in the field. I did a master's with him after I took this class. So we did field work in northern Mexico and Montana and Wyoming. Mm. And being spending time with somebody like that in the field, is it, it makes a huge, huge impression. And, and that's really when I fell in love with the the flora of the the west and that that is so great to to hear that um story of that one person who really took you that next step into what would clearly become your career and passion and it's always like that is i mean it's often like that where just one person's enthusiasm is so contagious and it is a mentorship in itself it it really is it is so much i really enjoyed spending time with him both in the lab and in the field and he you know Steve taught me so much and like I said the best way to really learn about that stuff was out in the field with somebody who who knew it seemed to know everything (laughs) (laughs) right so is that would that have been the first time that you would have met Ariogonum as a as a genus Actually, yes. When I was a master's student, I worked on a, a different group, understanding the, the evolutionary history and the, the taxonomy. It was in the mustard family, actually. Mm. Um, bladder pod is a common name. And that was one of Steve's specialties. So I worked with that, saw those in the field. But as I was seeing those, I was noticing patterns of where plants grew in relation to different soil types. Mm-hmm. And I kept encountering Ariogonum and rare species, and that's that's kind of how I got there, sort of a circuitous route. Um, but then when I started my PhD at Madison, I was looking to looking for a group of plants that I could attempt to understand speciation and how that relates to growing on different substrates and soil types. Yeah. And that's what really led me to Ariogonum is they're incredible plants in so many ways. Um, but one of the incredible things was that they can grow on almost any soil type. <laughs> so true. It is so true. And the it's it's funny because I, I want to make it clear for listeners that um, you know, it sounds with these, you know, these words that we're using, this speciation and substrate and um, that we're talking about something really kind of specialized and rarefied. And in many ways we are because it's such an interesting genus. 
but it's also such a common one across the West, and it's such a good garden plant, and it's just drop-dead beautiful. So it is, you know, I, I talk about this a little bit in some information that I, I have when I give talks to gardeners, that it is this botanist's dream in many ways, but it's also a home gardener's dream when you're looking for plants that are good in in dry or, um, you know, poor soil environments. So now that leads us into the genus itself. It's also known as the the wild buckwheat or the ornamental buckwheat. Tell us a little bit about the the genus and some of its characteristics from your perspective. Um, But let's start with why are they called buckwheats? They're so they're in the same family as Phagopyrum, which is the pancake buckwheat. Mm-hmm. So when you when you hear somebody talking about buckwheat pancakes, they're not talking about Eriogonum. They're talking about a a genus in a different part of the family, but fairly closely related. So, so it, yeah, and that and comes... those are not native to North, North America. America. Those you would have to go to Asia to find those. Okay. So Eriogonum is kind of our North American buckwheat, if you will. Um, you would have to work really hard to make pancakes from these. <laughs> um, but like I said before, there are a number of things that are incredible and fascinating about this genus, one of which is there are over 250 species. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a mega genus endemic to North America but largely, you know, northern Mexico to southern Canada. So right in the western U.S. is the, it's the heart of the diversity. And California especially. Yeah. California, there are over 100 species of Eriogonum yeah. in California. And they, they run the gamut in terms of where you find these. You can find these at the, some of the lowest elevations in Death Valley. And... Some of my favorites are the alpine species where mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're up almost to the tippy tops of some of these largest peaks. And sure enough, there are various species of alpine buckwheat, happy as can be, and everything in between. So the diversity of the habitats is fascinating, but the diversity of the, the life form or, you know, the, the morphology is also incredible. You yeah. have plants that are teeny tiny little annuals that you really have to get down on your hands and knees to appreciate. Um, You also have perennials that are mat forming perennials, erect perennials like the naked buckwheat. Um, But then you also have shrubs too. So I feel like there are so many species out there that they can fit in a garden in so many different ways. Mm Just this last weekend, I was visiting a native plant garden, um, uh, friends friends of mine in the area, and um, they probably had at least seven or eight different Eriogonum in the garden, and their St. Catherine's Lace, that one of, one of the bigger ones, um, which comes, I think, for, that's sort of originally native to the Channel Islands. Is that correct? Yeah. And so there are a couple of species that are endemic or only found on the channel islands yeah and this one gets really quite big so sort of four to five feet tall four to five feet wide with these lovely big long inflorescences which spread out into this branching head maybe 12 inches 18 inches across and it's that lovely creamy color 
um, and it's kind of light and airy, a little bit like a Queen Anne's lace, just larger and not invasive. So (laughs) that's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, some of those shrubs can be quite showy, and the the number of flowers you can find on these things, it's, it's... it's out of control because the flowers themselves are really small. You need a, you almost need a hand lens to appreciate an individual flower. But when you see hundreds of these flowers together clustered in a variety of types of inflorescences, it's, mm-hmm. it's really stunning. So describe if you can visually when you say it takes it almost takes a hand lens to appreciate each flower. Describe what you see when you look at it through a hand lens because it is just it's amazingly beautiful. It really is. It really is. So the individual flowers in Eriogonum have six tepals. So a tepal is it's like a I mean it's a petal or a sepal, you just can't tell the difference. Something like you would see with lilies. Mm-hmm. So we have these small tepals or petal-like things. Um, and color-wise, they can go anywhere from white to yellow to red, rose, pink, all over the place. And if you're looking at these things under magnification, a lot of times you see other little nectar spots or guides in there that you wouldn't have noticed. Mm. Um, hairs are, so plant hairs or trichomes. Uh, we see a lot of different patterns of these associated with areogonum. And under, you know, under a hand lens, those really show up and really they're quite incredible. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. The genus Areogonum belongs to the so-called knotweed family. Edible buckwheat, Phagopyrum esculentum, is an important food crop originating from Eurasia and is in the same botanical family. While species of Areogonum do occur elsewhere, the genus is strongly associated with the American Intermountain West. We'll be right back after a break to hear more about them with Dr. Ben Grady of the University of Wisconsin, Platteville. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Dr. Ben Grady regarding his love and knowledge of what are known as the wild buckwheats, the more than 250 species of dry, heat-loving, flowering plants comprising the genus Areogonum. Welcome back. So you you mentioned that there are over 250 species in uh, North America, and this is a very definitely a North American genus. And you say that is sort of a, a mega genus. For, for relativity's sake, give us an example of another maybe common genus that would have, and tell us how many species they have, just to give a comparison. So you mentioned astragalus. Mm-hmm. Uh, gosh, there are probably 500 different species of astragalus. Those are not limited to North America, but... If you're out botanizing in, you know, in these wonderful western areas, there are a number of different genera that you'll encounter. Astragalus is one. Lomatium is one. Penstemon is another beautiful genus. And there are just so many species. The diversity is it's off the charts, which also makes them really difficult to identify. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you're out 
interested in identifying species, these these genera that are so large, it's it is a real challenge sometimes to to identify them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the penstemons I come to mind. The um, as you say, the lomatia, the salvia, um, but they have fewer North American native species, but they're a huge genus worldwide. Um, so in terms of the, so, so talk about the society. Like, what is the history of the society? Why do people have a, a society dedicated to one genus? Describe a little bit about how you got involved and, and what the, the society represents in your mind. So... Having a society dedicated to one genus really, I think, is a testament to the interest and the diversity of Areognum. Mm-hmm. You know, not every genus out there has this dedicated following of passionate folks. Areognum is one. There is a Penstemon society as yep. well. And there's quite a bit of overlap, I think, between the Penstemon Society and the Areognum Society, from my experience. Yeah, there absolutely is. So it's, you know, it's, like I said, it's a testament to the genus and how much people love them. Yeah. They love to have them in the garden, obviously, and I think that's the impetus for the creation of the Areognum Society. Um, The founders, Hugh McMillan and Bob McFarland, Arlen, I believe mm-hmm. um, they're they're wonderful rock gardeners, but they're also interested in natural history and and really all aspects. And they they started the Areognum Society, I believe it was about 2010, to bring together information and folks interested in really all aspects of Areognum, not just not just horticulturists, not just amateur rock gardeners and not just um, botanists, but this interesting, eclectic mix of of people. So they started the society, and initially the the Areognum guru is, or was, Jim Reveal. Mm -hmm. So Jim Reveal was a, a Western botanist that devoted his life, really, to understanding species, but he was the Areognum guy. All, basically, any work done on Areognum went through Jim Reveal, and he was an incredible teacher. He was an incredible person to work with. His knowledge was just, it was astonishing. I don't know what his official title would have been, but maybe like a scientific advisor to the Areognum Society, and he would lead field trips, and he would talk through identification. He would lead classes on how to identify Areognum. And after his passing, um, well, before his passing, he talked to the board of the Areognum Society and and recommended my name to, to take over if that ever came up. And unfortunately, it did. Um, so the Areognum Society reached out to me and asked if I would be involved and I of course I would <laughs> getting together with wonderful folks that uh, are so interested in the plants um, so that's how I came to get involved with with the society mm-hmm. I put together field guides local field guides for the trips um, 
we're out in field trips and I try to talk people through the identification and sort of the natural history mm-hmm. of Areognum. They certainly did not ask me to become a part of it for my expertise in growing these things. <laughs> <laughs> there are, yeah, there are a lot of other folks that are really good at growing these and I am not one of them. But I do love talking to these folks that, that grow these so so well and so beautifully in their gardens because that's certainly not my area of expertise. Yeah. The, and that is an interesting, um, I think, beauty of this genus, a little bit like the penstemon and a little bit like the salvia, is that they do translate really nicely into the garden. It, they can be in... Um, a border, they can be in pots, they can be in a very defined rock garden area. Um, there are so many to play with that it gives you a lot of, um, and they're not, um, I, I use this term, they're not resentful of a garden condition for the most part. They aren't <laughs> like, you know, you will have some ceanothus or uh, there are other plants who just really don't want to be in a garden <laughs> and, um, and they let you know it quickly. Um, but areogonums are not one of them. And uh, to be able to have so many to choose from, and not a lot are available. I think this is one of the things that compels me about the Areogonum Society is that we still don't have a good many available on the commercial market to purchase at like native plant nurseries or um, some native plant societies will have the, some of the specialty ones for sale. And there are some specialist growers across the country, but I can see where there is a lot of um, room for growth in this area of, of, you know, plant production. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's uh all of the species that I've seen have been out in their native habitats, and it, it's almost indescribable how stunning some of these things are. <laughs> but really, yeah, there are only a handful of, of plants or seeds available to the, to the rock gardeners. And I think that is one of the reasons the Areogonum Society got going, not just to appreciate Areogonum, but to get a network of folks together that could exchange seeds, exchange tips on growing these things to make them more available to people, mm-hmm. to make that information um, more available to people. So we could see more areogonum in people's gardens. And so here, here is a, one of the dilemmas, and this I think is also part of the purpose of the society, is that as we are educating ourselves and one another on how this beautiful group grows and where we find it and under what conditions, who its companion plants are. We also learn a little bit more about some of the mm, challenges to to that, uh, that growing interest. So an example is that when I last interviewed uh, Hugh McMillan and Bob McFarlane, at that same time, we were Um, It was becoming apparent in Southern California that Caltrans, in trying to do a good thing and removing some invasive plants along highways and, uh, you know, road verges in Southern California, had replaced and, and 
put in some restoration plantings pretty extensively, and they were mm-hmm. using uh, Areogonum fasciculatum. Um, this is the California buckwheat. It's absolutely beautiful. It grows wonderfully in lots of different environments, and this seemed like a great idea. It's a it's a great habitat plant for pollinators. It accepts these kind of difficult conditions easily. But what they found was that in taking one genetic strain of the Areogonum fasciculatum and planting it over wide areas, there was the danger of contaminating, and I'm using that, it's a pretty harsh word, but in affecting the genetics of the local, the, the local strains of Areogonum near where this was being planted. And so this brings up this, the importance of before getting a lot of plants onto the market that will do well, like understanding a little bit more about what some of the consequences might be. Absolutely, absolutely, because there are a number of species of Areogonum that are considered to be rare in some form or another, either federally listed as endangered species or state listed or considered sensitive by a national forest here or there. Um, And there are a few species that really jump to mind that I've had the chance to work with. Some of these, the, the distribution would be just a handful of city blocks for an entire species. And Eriogonum ceridium, or the Frisco Mm. Mountain buckwheat jumps to mind. This is in West Central Utah. Mm. It's so, so limited in distribution that it would be, luckily it's sort of out in the middle of nowhere, but it would be devastating if that species or that population would be impacted by gene flow or genes from another species of Areogonum. Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of, it's, I mean, and to me, while it seems, again, a little esoteric, it's just an important conversation to have about any of these native uh, genera and and their distribution as we um, are trying to get to know them, trying to protect them, trying to, you know, encourage people to work with them in the gardens or in restoration plantings. Um, these are some of the uh, kind of nuances of this work that I think are important to make people aware of. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes it's we may not have all of the information at the time. Yeah, we don't know what impacts could be, um, what could come out of it until, in some cases, it's too late. And so that brings me to the conference and. Um, and the, this one coming up in Weed uh, in the end of July. And so the society hosts an annual meeting every other year. Is that Every correct? year, actually. Every, every year. year. And so tell me some of the other places they've been and how they choose a place to go visit. So they choose a place to visit based on interesting species of Areogonum. And there are no shortage of those areas across the western U.S. Last year, we were in, we were outside of Baker, California, in the Mojave in the fall. And we saw some, a lot of common species, but also a number of really rare species as well. So we do field trips, and usually local experts take us out into areas where we'll, you know, we could find this species or this species. 
prior to that last two years ago we would have our meeting was based out of Reno and that part of Nevada and California is really kind of a hot spot for areogonum diversity a lot of really interesting things there um, but I know in the past they've also gone to Idaho New Mexico let's see they would have done one out of Lone Pine in California so adjacent to the White Mountains mm -hmm. and this year obviously is in Weed, California, which I'm extremely excited for. And next year, we're not quite sure, possibly Utah, but we'll have that discussion um, here in just a, about a month or so. And w has there been one in Colorado yet? You know, I can't think of one that was based out of Colorado. There was one based out of Farmington, New Mexico, which yeah. is right in the Four Corners area. Right in the south. Um, yeah. Because I know Hugh, I believe Hugh is in Denver or outside of Denver. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And he has a fantastic home garden. So just for, <laughs> for that reason only, I, I definitely advocate that uh, the society go to Colorado at, at some point. Yeah, um, that's a great idea. So the one coming up in Weed, Tell us about what you're what you're excited about and, and who who is going to be there and which areogonum you are hoping to meet in person. Ah, excellent question. Um, so I'm most excited about the actually the serpentine areas around weed, and that's the definitely the reason we selected um, weed. Describe and for the, for listeners who may not be familiar. Describe what you mean when you say serpentine areas. What is that? Okay. That's a, yeah. So serpentine is a type of rock. It's a, a metamorphic rock associated with plate boundaries. Um, there are a lot of this, a lot of outcrops of this serpentine rock in California. And when it weathers, it weathers to a, you can call it a soil, but you probably wouldn't really think of it as a soil. The idea is that in these serpentine areas, very, very few plants can tolerate these conditions. Um, the soil chemistry is incredibly out of whack. Most plants can't grow there. I was reading something the other day, somebody describing serpentine areas, and I think the quote was that if you were a plant and you could pick where you could grow, it would not be on serpentine substrates. <laughs> <laughs> so there are very few plants that can tolerate these types of conditions. But Eriogonum is one. And there are a number of species of Eriogonum that are only found in these serpentine areas. And those are some that I'm most interested in, in seeing again. I haven't been to that part of California in probably eight years or maybe even a little bit more. So, so I'm really excited to get back there and to see Eriogonum alpinum. That's the Trinity wild buckwheat. All of the serpentine endemic species that we'll see in Northern California are all very closely related to Eriogonum umbilatum or the sulfur flower, mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that, which that's an extremely widespread species. And it's one of the most popular for garden use. It's got that, that low, moundy, dark green sort of um, rounded leaf, and then it has that kind of shocking electric yellow flower that comes up in kind of 
early June. It's late spring, early summer, and that yellow is just, mm, it's just beautiful. Yeah, that's the perfect way to describe that. So a lot of the species that we'll be seeing on our field trips are similar to that, but there are they're different species. Mm-hmm. And the distinctions can be minimal or they can be really quite easy to make. But the Areogonum alpinum, the trinity wild buckwheat, is one that is has relatively large leaves, which is, you know, most Areogonum have really small leaves. These are relatively large, maybe a couple of inches across, mm. very hairy. So these leaves look white. They look woolly almost. It's really quite attractive. And the the yellow of the flowers is, like you said, that shocking electric yellow. And this is one that grows on this serpentine substrate in really barren areas. So it does, it sticks out and it's, it's quite happy there, but extremely limited in distribution, as would be the, the Siskiyou wild buckwheat, which would be very similar to Ereogonum umbilatum, except it has sort of a single head-like cluster of those yellow flowers, mm-hmm. all low-growing, sort of mat-forming uh, species, which in nature they're stunning, and in the garden they're stunning. Uh, Iriogonum declinum, or Jane's Canyon wild buckwheat, is one I hope to see. It is This one forms mats that are extremely large, and when I say extremely large, I'm talking maybe a meter or two across in some cases. Wow. So you, you're out on these serpentine barrens, and you see this mat, this carpet of Areogonum that's, you know, a couple meters, a meter or two wide, and it's it's stunning. And it is that that surprise of being out hiking. It's, you, you know, you are in, you are above tree level. You, it's, you know, windy and it's sun pounded and you see rock and rock and rock and dirt and dirt and a conifer. And then all of a sudden you, you get around a corner and you see this just garden of bloom that will be rich and lush and you think how did you get here and why are you so happy like it's crazy I you know I've had that thought so many times it's, <laughs> you know you you see these areas and you know a little bit about the soil and my thought you know one thought that always come, uh, came to mind is you shouldn't be here you shouldn't right. be growing there <laughs> <laughs> and but they are and they're perfectly happy yeah they're perfectly happy in one case I was in extreme southeastern Oregon and I had heard of a population of Crosby's wild buckwheat growing on mine tailings. So I tracked this down and I found this old mine that hadn't been run years and years, old machinery around and big piles of of rock that they took out. And it turns out it was an old mercury mine. Mm. So here you have this giant pile of mercury laced rock and on it was Ariogonum crosby the crosby's wild buckwheat and it was just happy as can be i am jennifer jewell and this is cultivating place in this gardening and horticultural life there are generalists and there are specialists 
This week on Cultivating Place, we're speaking with botanist Dr. Ben Grady about his work on the board of the Areogonum Society and the Society's upcoming conference and field trips around the area of Weed, California. While you may or may not be familiar with the name or the genus Areogonum, and you may write them off as too specialized, I can promise you, once you meet these beautiful, resilient flowering plants, you will know they were meant for the gardens of us more generalist flower folk. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Dr. Ben Grady regarding his love and knowledge of what are known as the wild or ornamental buckwheats, the more than 250 species of dry, heat-loving, flowering plants comprising the genus Areogonum. Welcome back. This co-evolution with... um, the serpentine, some of these species that have co-evolved to to have their little niche on serpentine. And serpentine is our state rock, actually, here in California. Right. And it's that lovely, like, green, kind of slaty green color that can be deep green or it can be kind of a washed, dusty green. It, it's just beautiful, and, and you know it when you see it. Um, mm-hmm. And so this description of the, the Crosby's buckwheat on the mercury mine tailings, and then this coevolution with serpentine. Is there any bioremediation going on? Like, do they have any ability to help process these things out of the rock, or do they just figure out how to deal with it? That's a great question, and that was a question I was really hoping to address with my um, my PhD research, mm-hmm. and I did sort of. <laughs> so I was looking at whether there were any evolutionary patterns to soil specialists, I guess. Or the alternate would be whether areogonum or groups in areogonum can just tolerate a lot of, like a wide range of soil properties and soil chemistries. And that was the conclusion that we, that we came to is that, and I'm not, I don't want to apply this to all species in areogonum, but at least the group, we focused on, um, there did not seem to be an evolutionary pattern. So it just seemed that they have this generalist genotype that can tolerate the nastiest soils you could think of. But I think the key was they could do this in the absence of competition. So right. there, when there's a lot of other vegetation around, you tend not to find areogonum species. Yeah. If you're mm-hmm. out looking for these things in, you know, in the field, you look for areas that are barren, they're bald, you, okay, that if I was areogonum, that's where I'd be growing. Right. Yeah. The nudum seems to do pretty well. So the naked buckwheat, the areogonum nudum, seems to like the road verges in our area. And so they they actually seem to compete pretty nicely with the other strange, you know, weed seeds that germinate happily on disturbed ground next to the road uh, in, in our area. But in general... Um, yeah, that's, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but it's true. You wouldn't, you don't look in the forest. You look out in the exposed rock when you're hiking for these. Yeah. 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 So, um, when you think about the conference, what are the, who are the speakers we're, we're going to be looking forward to? And would you recommend a meeting like this for, uh, for anybody who just is, sort of interested in in the way plants grow, or is it so specialized they might not get enough out of it? 
Oh, that's that's a great question. But that's actually one of the beauties of the society in my mind is that you have this really interesting mix of folks from from all across the board. Mm-hmm. And they're just genuinely interested in plants. They're in, obviously interested in eriogonum, but seeing these things out in the field and talking and it's it has a, a very family-like atmosphere. It really does. I, you know, some of these folks I see once a year and I'm always looking forward to seeing them again. And it, once you get together, it's just like just old friends. And, uh, it has a very, like I said, a family like relationship. It's a very close knit relationship, fun people to be around, just really fun. And if you're thinking about the meeting, if you're interested in gardening, if you're interested in native plants, then it would be a great meeting to go to. We will have a, an identification class. So I'm working on a, a workshop to teach people how to identify eriogonum species because they are notoriously one of the more difficult species to identify mm-hmm. in terms of features. So I'm working on a, we'll have a workshop on that to teach people how to better identify these. We will do field trips, I think Saturday, Sunday, and Monday field trips around the weed area, which there's plenty there in a relatively short distance. So we'll go out and we'll see some of these folks, uh, some of these species, excuse me, in their native habitats. And then it's just, you know, we do have a banquet, so it's very social and people, like I said, it's, it's, it's a fun group to be around. Yeah. It's instant, you know, instant family almost. Well, and um, I would say that sometimes scientific communities can be a little intimidating and make you feel a little bit left out when they use a lot of, you know, the jargon that goes with the the study of their field. But I have never gotten that sense from the Ariogonum Society. They're very friendly and very happy to um, include anyone in a conversation. And this was certainly my experience in interviewing Hugh and Bob a couple years back. So, um, and I think one of the hikes we're going to take, uh, and I will be at the conference, I was asked to sit on the gardening panel on Friday yes. evening. Um, I'm very much looking forward to that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did have to provide the, the caveat that I don't, you get down to the, you know, sepals and teeples and and counting things and you lose me i like <laughs> the little short pink one over there that that's the level that i get to i love learning how to identify but um i stay at the what things look like or smell like or if they're a good cut flower for the most right. part and um and i love growing them so i was happy to sit on the panel as long as we all understood exactly what i was bringing to this table um <laughs> And But we are going to take a hike up Mount he- Eddy, I believe, and this was one of the great experiences of my life hiking in Northern California, which was taking, um, to doing this hike up to the top of Mount Eddy maybe three or four summers back, and you change environments three or four times on this hike, and you meet more buckwheats than I have ever experienced in my life, and I grew up um, at elevation in Colorado and have mm. lived all over the West. And that hike on Mount Eddy was, was superlative. So it was, it was great. Um, so oh, ab- absolutely. I've through my field work, I've been to hundreds or maybe more 
different sites where eriogonum grow all across the West. And that Mount Eddy, that site really sticks out in my mind. And it's not only for the, for the views, but the diversity of habitats, but you see so many eriogonum species along the way. Yeah. And eriogonum alpinum, one of my favorites is, is up there on Mount Eddy as well. The, and I think also on Friday evening there will be a talk by, by a friend of mine, John Whittlesey, who will be talking about pollinators on uh, Areogonum. And, of course, this is one of the great groups of plants to support and attract pollinators to your garden. Um, and then there will be quite a bit more. So do you, like, do you even have Areogonum in Wisconsin, Ben? They're not native to Wisconsin. And when I tell people what I study most people don't know. Right. Um, so <laughs> but I think that's a... true here too, to be honest. So <laughs> that's good. That's why we're talking about this. Yes. But if I'm talking to people in California and I mention eriogonum or wild buckwheat, they're like, okay. And if I'm talking to someone in the Midwest that hasn't really done any, you know, exploring in the West, it's like, huh? And I like, well, I'll try to explain it a little bit. Um, but so there are no native species in Wisconsin. People that are really passionate about rock gardens try really hard to get them to grow. And so is that one of the ter- determining factors? Because you do get a certain point to the east and they just aren't grown. And I'm guessing that's just humidity, right? Because it's, yeah. not, it's not heat and it's right. not... Um, it's not sun, it, so it's just there's too much humidity, especially with heat, to make them happy. Right, right. Yeah. They're once, yeah, you can, I've seen people grow them in the Midwest, but not very often. You really have to, you really have to want it, I think, to, to grow eriogonum in your rock garden in the, in the Midwest. Yeah. If you were going to point listeners in the direction of some good resources on eriogonum, um, just general resources, what would those be? I think the best place to start would actually be the Areogonum Society website and contacting one of us. We get questions passed along through email all year long about this species or that species, and it's such a great resource and it's a great network of people that I would, anybody that's interesting, interested in eriogonum, whatever aspect it might be, to contact one of us with the eriogonum society. We, like I said before, I love talking eriogonum and I, it's any questions I would be more than happy to help out with. If they're rock gardening questions, I would certainly direct you to someone else. Yeah. <laughs> but that would be my place to start, I think, would be the Eriogonum Society website. Um, there are other more technical, more scientific websites out there. The, the Flora of North America has a detailed key written by Jim Reveal that you could work through to identify things, and it has distribution information for all the species out there. Um, so that has a, t- a lot of information. That would be a good place to start. California has a lot of a lot of different websites. CalPhotos is there. They have a Cal huge Flora. collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there, the thing about Areogonum is that those photos are properly identified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I think the California Native Plant Society has some some information, um, and certainly CalScape or CalFlora, both uh, searchable uh, location-based uh, sites would be would be helpful. Um, and I I haven't actually looked at the North American Rock Gardening Society website specifically for. Um, Areogonum, but I, I will look at that before I come up to be part of the panel. The and that's the acronym for that is NARGS, N A R G S, which you know plant plant nerds unite, right? But um, which is great, which is great. Um, so just to, there is yeah. one more. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, me. go. There is one more book that I think is pretty pretty handy. Graham Nichols' um, Alpine Plants of North America, I believe, is the title, oh, but yeah. it's. It's written – there's a lot of sound scientific information in there, but it's it's geared towards a rock gardener, and it's not just areogonum in there. So there are all – a lot of different genera that you could find information, um, distributions, growing things like that, and really great photos too actually. So if you're looking for a, a book, an old-fashioned book, then uh, Graham Nichols' Alpine Plants of North America would be a great place to start. Excellent. I do not have that book, and now I need to go and look it up. So, <laughs> um, so is there is there anything else you would like to add about this genus, about the study of these plants, and um, maybe why why is work like this so important in your mind? Well, there are so so many reasons that we need to have really just basic scientific knowledge about native uh, native species not I mean not even just native plant species but native species in general there it, it's really hard to understand one species or one group of plants without understanding other types of species as well. And and what I mean here is that the impact something like Eriogonum would have on pollinators. Or there are a number of butterflies that use Eriogonum as a host plant. So if we were to, say, unfortunately lose a species of Eriogonum, if we didn't have this basic scientific understanding of where we find it, who it's related to, um, then we wouldn't know what impact that could have on the ecosystem in general. And it's really important to gain an understanding of what's out there before it's gone, and I know that is sort of doomsday as well, but Eriogonum is one of these groups that we're still finding new species. We're still finding new species. In fact, Jim Reveal and I described a new species just a couple of, well, a few years ago now um, from west central Utah, isolated mountain range. And there are people out there that are finding these unusual areogonum species. Is this a new species? What's it related to? Well, I would like to know as much as we can about that because there are so many ways that we could use that information. Thank you very much for being with us today. I'm really um, looking forward to the conference and meeting you in person. Yes, it's a it's a great group of people, and I'm looking forward to uh, to meeting you as well, Jennifer.
Dr. Ben Grady is an instructor of biology and botany at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. He sees his job as helping his students appreciate the world that they live in. Grady, who began teaching at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville in 2012, enjoys spending his time outside the classroom, working with botany societies and studying different plants, particularly in the western United States, plants like Areogonum. The genus Areogonum belongs to the so-called knotweed family, Polygonaceae. Edible buckwheat, Phagopyrum esculentum, is an important food crop originating from Eurasia and is in the same botanical family. While species of Areogonum do occur elsewhere, the genus is strongly associated with the American Intermountain West, with the greatest number of species occurring in California. The Jepson Manual of Higher Plants of California states that Areogonum is named from the Greek for woolly knees as a result of the hairy nodes of some of them. According to international Areogonum expert Dr. James Reveal, quote, as a native North American genus, Areogonum is second only to Penstemon, and different species occur from the seashore to the highest mountains. They are among the last plants seen atop the Sierra Nevada and those on the outskirts of Death Valley. One or more is bound to thrive in your drought-tolerant, pollinator-friendly garden. Give them a try. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy Cultivating Place and value these conversations, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. And take a few seconds to give the podcast a rating and a review at iTunes. Or, most meaningfully, share it with others who value this level of conversation about these things we love and which connect us. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.